And so we have to figure out ways to kind of say, okay, well, how do we tamp down on bad behavior, regardless of ideology, right? It doesn't, nothing that, you know, in terms of, should you be corrupt? No, I don't, I think there's, there's widespread agreement that corruption is bad. Uh, Should we lie and cheat and steal? No, I think there's widespread agreement that that's bad. But there's no means of enforcing that those th- that those things are bad within politics that are highly polarized and tribal. This is a new angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. This is uh, our monthly installment of Incentives and Instincts from the bunker um, remotely with Bryce Ward. Bryce, thanks for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here again, as always. Indeed, and I'm also joined on the, um, I don't know quite how to describe it, there's a bed in the studio, and that bed is currently occupied by Rory, our six-month-old Australian shepherd who is uh, laying there peacefully with a big cone around her head, having just been spayed a couple of days ago. So if you hear any rustling in the background, that's Rory. Um, kind of the only way we could pull off recording under the circumstance. So anyway. Fair enough. We, so the cone is actually staying on? Oh, God. Well, that's a whole. we could do a whole episode about <laughs> trying to keep the cone on. But um, yeah, we'd... Uh, I don't know if we get very far. I've got it tied to her collar. That seems to be the uh, the, the operative solution at the moment. So yeah, yeah, like whatever, four months ago when I was in the same situation, I'm not sure we ever figured out how to keep it on. Yeah. You think <laughs> but, like we put a man on the moon, theoretically, you think we could figure out cones, but anyway. So um, I thought, you know, particularly after last month's episode, when we were sort of uh, dark, and didn't uh, really come up with any uh, clarity toward the end of the uh, end of the conversation. I thought this week we could talk about um, some solutions. And you know, one of the things you and I have talked about extensively over the years, Bryce, and this is sort of an extension of of last month's conversation about not being able to solve problems, is this notion of sort of dysfunction in our political system. Part of its polarization. It's got a lot of other causes. Um, and, and you have some really interesting ideas for, for maybe some solution. Before we get to the solution, let's, let's, um, let's talk about the problem first. How, Bryce, when you think about our political state of affairs right now, and I think more structurally rather than the, the, the personalities that occupy some of these offices, but structurally, what, how do you kind of get your head around the problem? Because it's easy to throw up your hands and say everything's broken, but when we're thinking about the degree to which things are broken, like how are you formalizing the problem? Um, well, like you mentioned, there's a lot of different pieces to it, but in some sense, the core problem is the problem that we talked about last time, which is it seems hard to get anything done. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in part, that's a function of just being a large country with lots of different interests that are competing. 
um, and the fact that many problems aren't obviously positive sum in that, you know, there's, or simply positive sum. Let's, like let's actually be, explain that. Like, what's the difference between positive sum, negative sum, and zero sum framing? Yeah, so, well, I mean, if, if you're trying to solve a problem, and let's imagine we have some way of quantifying welfare, and then we say, okay, well, we do something, and, uh, you know, in a simple world, oh, it's an easy problem. We say, oh, we do this, and everyone is at least as well off as they were before, right? So no one is worse off, mm -hmm. right? There's only people who are better off. Right, that's the easiest positive sum solution in the world, right? You know, there's no negative, just positive, right? And if we can't do those kinds of solve those kinds of problems, then we have real, real, real problems. Um, most problems are there's the potential for positive sum, but that means that the benefit, you know, that the net gains to the winners is enough to offset the cost to the losers. So you could imagine in some alternate reality where you would say, well, okay, the winners gained, you know, X and X is bigger than Y. And so, you know, the, the winners could take their gains and share with those who lost. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, in that case on net, it's positive sum. We're still collectively better off. And, you know, with transfers, everybody's better off, but we don't, aren't very good at doing those transfers. And that's where politics becomes a hard thing. And so those are both positive sum and that, you know, you end up with, you know, more good in the world uh, than you've taken out. Now, zero sum is just, I win, you lose. And it's just, I just, basically I'm just taking from you or uh, I'm taking an amount that's equal to what you're losing. And the negative sum is where, you know, I got something, but on net we collectively got worse off. Right. And so, you know, those are, those are our, the different worlds that, you know, we're trying to decide between in politics. And you know, obviously, you know, most problems have some trade-off. And the challenge is getting to a point in our society where it's okay if I don't win every time, Right. It's okay if, you know, sometimes I win and sometimes I lose, as long as there is enough positive sum growth, you know, we're all getting better off collectively. And it's not all just, we're getting better off and it's all only accruing to the same set of people all the time. Sure. If, you know, if we're sharing the prosperity, then, you know, you should be able to find grounds for, you know, cooperation, Right. Uh, but where we run aground is if we can't see the fact that it's a positive sum solution, right? Or we allow things that are technically positive sum, but again, we just keep rewarding the same people and we just keep taking from the same other people, then, you know, that doesn't work. You know, when we're thinking about this, Bryce, part of it is kind of the attitude that the players bring to the table, and then the attitude the supporters of those players bring to the table. So, you know, when we're talking about negative sum, like we are, sorry, when we're talking about zero sum, we can think of it in terms of there's a winner and there's a loser. And, you know, that's a very transactional kind of approach. And it sort of views negotiation as, as adversarial. Whereas there's other folks that, that come to negotiation or come to situations with a, 
with a positive sum attitude, thinking, okay, there's possibility of creating win-win here. And so, you know, I think we're in a state right now with our politics where it's framed as winners and losers. There is an appeal um, to the supporters of, you know, the office holders in that, like polarization in, in some ways, like it kind of, it feels good at, at, at on some levels, right? It feels good to look at media that re, re that sort of reconfirms our worldview. It feels good to see information that confirms the world as we see it. Um, we got to find a way to break out of that. We got to find a way to break out of our tribes. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's and that's kind of if if you're saying to me, what's the core problem? You know the the core problem is the move into a competing mindset, mm-hmm. right? Where we're no longer trying to compromise or in the best case, collaborate. Collaborate is where you try and find that true positive sum solution. Uh, and our politics has just become competition. And it's viewed as zero sum at best. And once you're in that mindset, then it's just, you know, there's lots of other things that we observe that we don't like in terms of, you know, confirmate, you know, the types of media that just kind of confirm what we want. Um, you know, there's a tendency towards what I'll call magical thinking, right? Where it's just like, you know, my side, whatever they do, it will solve the problem. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's based in reality sure. or uh, has any evidence behind it or whatever my tribe tells me is the correct thing is just the correct thing. And we just do it. And in spite of, you know, obvious flaws with it. Well, and, and we see that, I mean, that sounds sort of um, silly as you, as you put it out there, but we see it in political polling all the time. You know, we saw it with president Obama, when Obama would come out in favor of something that had previously been either neutral or favored by Republicans, Republicans wouldn't like it. We see when Trump, you know, articulates some sort of policy that maybe was, you know, take Russia, for example. You know, Russia was sort of hated by Republicans for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden, you know, Trump and Russia are a little bit closer or a little less negative toward one another and Republicans start liking Russia. Um, So, yeah, the public kind of moves on some of these uh, dimensions in real ways. Yeah, in ways that you go, how is this even possible? Right, exactly. It's detached uh, from sort of any sort of reason in a way. Yeah. And so, but yeah, once you're in that, but that's 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 what happens once you move into politics as tribal identity. Right. Uh, and then the polarization, you know, and the, the statistic that really radicalized me, uh, in 2014, the Pew Research, you know, survey people, uh, they ask a question in one of their surveys where, you know, so if you were identified as a Republican or you identified as a Democrat, you were asked um, about the, op- the opposite side, right? And it was a particular question that asked about, you know, whether they were kind of harming the country, right? And not, you know, not just disagreement, but it was basically like, no, no. And, you know, at that point in time, it was almost a majority. And I'm sure at this point it is now well past the majority of partisans viewed the people on the other side effectively as enemies of the state. Right. Right. And now we hear that term a lot, particularly from the president. Right. In terms of if you don't agree with me, you are the enemy. And 
once you're there, that's a very bad place to be. Uh, because we, you know, we're no longer in a, I think that regulation is good and you think it's bad. Um, even though it does, it affects neither of us that much. Right. And it's no, no. If something that happens that, that you, you know, is quote unquote good for you, I must therefore be losing because you're my enemy. Right. And that was where I was like, whoa, this isn't, this isn't good. Right. You know, when I saw that statistic, it was, uh, you know, I started raising the question with people, you know, socially, should we just get a divorce or not? Because we need to start having a conversation about whether or not we want to be together or not, because, uh, I don't think it's healthy to live in a country where you hate each other. Uh, you know, because yeah, that's, that's not gonna, that's, that's not gonna lead to good, you know, you know, individual outcomes and it's not going to lead to good social outcomes because if we can't ever reach the point of even compromise, much less collaboration, then, you know, you end up where we're at right now. And so let's, let's actually give, let's give the moment right now a little bit of historical context. I mean, it feels like it's worse than it's ever been in my lifetime, but I might be paying attention at a different level than I, I had previously. You know, give us a sense for the history. Do you have a sense for where this moment of politi- uh, polarization lies historically? Um, well, funny you should ask, because I wrote a paper about this 14 years ago. You know, this was at the beginning of red states and blue states being a thing. Mm-hmm. And the thesis of that paper was that, we, you know, in some sense, it was the post-war period that was in some sense the anomaly um you know we you know we've had polarized parties for a long time you know that was kind of in some sense the historical norm at least geographically polarized parties you know and then we went through a period um in the late 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s in which the parties kind of realigned and as a result there was some kind of weirdness in terms of uh you know where people were or um, you know, geographically and who, who identified in what party and some of that. So there's some, definitely some, you know, some historical precedent for where we're at in terms of at least geographic polarization. But in terms of, you know, thinking of each other as enemies, obviously we did have a civil war. So Indeed. obviously things around that probably weren't that different. Um, but, you know, certainly there they are anomalous for the lifetime of the people who are currently alive. And certainly they are anomalous to those of us who are now in the midst of it and trying to make this thing operate. So whether or not it's been this way 150 years ago or not, I'm not sure how relevant it is. You know, what we know is that where we're at right now is not great. Right. You know, I mean, that was, you know, yeah. And, you know, and, that was and, the premise of a whole of the whole of our whole series here is that even when things are good, they're not good. Uh and you know, so we're struggling with a lot of issues that are existential. And I don't certainly not in my lifetime, you know, in fact, I wrote my AP US history term paper in my junior year in high school about the opposite 
you know how at that point at that point in time which was in 1993 mm-hmm. uh you know the parties were were actually pretty similar right this was the year before newt gingrich and you know republicans kind of changed but at that time it was like you know there wasn't huge differences in a lot of ways between republicans and democrats and then and there was mixing within the groups too like we had you know conservative democrats and liberal republicans like the the political ideology was not 100 percent aligned with political party which it, it it certainly is now um you know let's so so we're at the brink and it does feel well I guess that's an open question whether we're at the brink or not. It certainly feels like it. And then within that, like there's so many reinforcing structures, you know, there's, there's huge penalties to violating the norms of, of sort of complying with your party and your political affiliation. There's a media environment that entrenches a lot of these uh, factors as well. It feels unbreakable. Um, yeah, let's ask the question, how do we break out of this? Like, what is, what, you you mentioned divorce before, we'll maybe get to that in, in, toward the end of the conversation, but what can we do now to maybe break the pattern? Well, so this is where you have to start. Yeah. So you mentioned how, if you deviate from your party, we've reached the point where the punishment is bigger for deviating from your party than from deviating from accepted norms, Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, kind of what we would have called national norms, right? And, and the punishment and, you know, for deviating greatly outweighs any benefit for cooperating. That's right. You know, so, you know, we've, we've now seen this with, you know, kind of the impeachment and, you know, just scandal after scandal after scandal, which if you're looking at them from a perspective of, say, 1990, you know, would have been the biggest thing in the world and would have been uniformly condemned and that politician would have been drummed out of society. Now it's just like, well, no, I can't, I can't do it. You know, if you're, if you're sufficiently influential, I can't do anything about it because that would be a giving a win to the other side. uh, And B whoever might replace you would be worse. Right. Even though you're a, a, corrupt criminal mm-hmm. but you know if, if, if having a corrupt criminal of my tribe is better than having a saint from the other side right and you know once you're in that situation that's where you're like well wait a second you know we have to have norms right we have to have you know we can't we can't turn to enforce justice to make politics work right that we have to have some sort of, you know, agreed upon rules and standards. And there has to be some attempt to compromise and collaborate because otherwise we are just in competition. And at which point it's only about whatever I do to get power ends justifies the means. And, you know, what you end up with in that process is, you know, that just escalates, that does not deescalate, that only escalates to the point of, you know, disruption and violence. And so we have to figure out ways to kind of say, okay, well, how do we tamp down on bad behavior, regardless of ideology, right? It doesn't, nothing that, you know, in terms of, should you be corrupt? 
No, I don't. I think there's there, there's widespread agreement that corruption is bad. Uh, should we lie and cheat and steal? No, I think there's widespread agreement that that's bad. But there's no means of enforcing that those th- that those things are bad within politics that are highly polarized and tribal. And so what we have to figure out is how do we reintroduce uh, mechanisms where we can punish bad behavior with enough force that it actually makes it so that people just don't make to engage in you know bad behavior in the first place. And so you know there's a whole variety of different ways that I have in my mind in terms of how to do that. But the, you know, the key idea is just we have to establish some, some parts of the process have to be you know, actually upheld as you know, we're not going to go outside of these bounds. And there has to be some means of enforcing that, those norms within the context of a highly polarized, highly tribal electorate. Well, that seems like intuitively doable at the level of like my family, I can say, okay, you know, Ainsley, Charlotte, here are the rules. Um, if you violate them, you're out. But am I really going to kick my kids out? Like, so what, what are, I feel like it breaks down. Like how how do we actually make it happen? Or where would you start? I mean, it's sort of an, it feels like an impossible problem, but like, how do we reintroduce norms into a system where all the norms have been broken? Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, A, you have to just agree on that there should be norms and that these norms are good and that they are valuable and worth keeping, right? So that's the first thing. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't, you hear people on the left decry the erosion of norms under this president and blah, blah, blah. And it, you know, it was probably going on under Obama too with complaints from the right. Is there agreement that norms are a good thing and that they're being broken? Uh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the, yes, the per- there is right. And you know, in the easiest way to look at it is just to look for hypocrisy. Yeah. Right. You know, so, um, you know, when Obama did anything, the right would cry foul. Right. And yet when Trump does something the same or worse, they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't think that these things are wrong. It's just that they conveniently forget that they think that they're wrong when it hurts their side. So I do think that there are, you know, I think that there are, you know, enough American apple pie, red, white, and blue norms that people probably do really do think are correct, you know, and that we could get widespread agreement on. Um, Or at the very least, a handful of tweets saying that I'm deeply troubled by these things. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you know, I mean, I... I think that, you know, so I think there are norms. The question is, is can you create a system that can enforce those norms? And my initial idea, which uh, I actually, you know, had the morning of the election in 2016, was that you needed to create a set of people who were the margin in the legislature. Okay. Right. So, you know, if it's the Senate and, you know, one party has, you know, 52 and the other party has 48 well then you would need to get at least three senators who were part of the movement and they would basically say we we care about process more than we care about ideology and if you senate majority leader 
violate the process, right? We will flip control of this chamber to the other party. You would think you those know, with people- all of the power that that entails. You would think that those sorts of people would have to come from really solid ground electorally. Like they'd have to be, well, I mean, if, if you're senators, maybe you got six year runway, you got some time, but you would think that you'd have to be relatively electorally secure. And if that's the case, you're probably coming from a very blue or a very red place. So it's hard, it's hard to sort of imagine who would be these people. I mean, Mitt Romney in a way could play such a role. He's, he's in a solidly red state. He's probably safe electorally, but his, you know, the, the, the political sort of, um, winds of his state are a little less tied to Trump. So maybe, maybe someone like him could, could occupy this space. Um, well, you know, so I, I, I mean, I think as long as, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, at least in a, a in a more normal time, um, most people aren't ideologues. A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Jeff Meese, media technician at the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. They're tribal, but they're not actually ideological. Right. Right. And if you're basically coming, you know, as a movement saying, you know, elect people who agree to be part of this movement, right? Um, and here's what we're going to promise you. I mean, I think there's a lot of people who they don't like the zero-sum conflict-only model, right? They want cooperation. They want collaboration. They want uh, compromise. You know, this, you know, I'll go to Washington and we'll negotiate and compromise. They, I mean, people run on that all the time. Yeah, they want to get stuff done right? too, presumably. Let's get stuff done, yeah. right? You know, there's not a lot of, there's, you know, like I said, people are tribal, but they're also, you know, there is, and certainly in different parts of the country, there is pragmatism. And, you know, another thing, you know, other place that, you know, you, 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 way that you can do it is, there are a lot of places which are quote unquote safe and it's not, and in my world, there should no be, there should be no safe elected official anywhere. Right. 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 And so this allows for somebody to come in and basically be like, well, this guy's crazy. Like I'll, I'll, I'll represent you in the same way in terms of your ideology. I'll vote for the same things, but you know, I'm happy to, be a check because ultimately once you put it in place, you probably won't need to ever pull the level lever mm -hmm. that much. Right. Because the power of, you know, control of a chamber is so significant that, you know, who, if you have clearly specified demands in terms of don't do this, um, you probably wouldn't have too many leaders who would be like, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and blow right past that. Um, you know, so, you know, and, and then the goal is so once you do that, it's okay, you've, you've kind of taken away the, the zero-sum, constantly escalating, violate the norms to get what I want path through. Well, now you open it back up and you try and, you know, your hope, essentially what, what 
what we've created is a system that's just poisoning the whole the whole well. Yep. Right. You know, now I don't even want to run for Congress because why would I run for Congress to be part of that horrible system? Mm-hmm. Right. So now the only people who select into even going to Congress or not the only people, but, you know, at the margin, the people who select into even wanting to be in Congress frequently are not the people that we, the people want going there. Right. Why? Because there's nothing, they just go there and they're basically just, they just get, you know, have to be part of a, an ugly, yucky system. And so to the extent that you can say, well, look, we want the system to work in these ways to pursue this amount of collaboration, this amount of compromise. And, you know, part of doing that is also then restoring norms of empathy and fairness. And, you know, being able to say to somebody, we passed this law and we understand that it's not good for you, as opposed to what we do right now, which is try and pretend that anything that we're supporting is only good and no bad, right? Well, let's be honest with people. Like, let's have people who are willing to look their constituents in the eye and say, yeah, for this particular thing, we think this is, you know, this advances the overall good. You know, I'll try and do better for you on the next one. Right. Well, and we don't have that conversation. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of baffling that we don't because it would just create. You know, and I'm sort of thinking out loud here. This would just create much more authenticity with our leaders. We, you know, any anybody lives in their lives has relationships, you know, or lives in a family or some part of a family, you know, and, and, and there's compromise happening all the time. You don't get everything you want, you get some of it, and you sort of, you know, you get what you get, and you don't throw a fit, is what we say in our family, and. We should sort of, you know, politics works the same way, right? There's, there's sometimes you win things, sometimes you lose things, sometimes it's mostly in between and yeah, just be honest about that. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and then hopefully that kind of, we can, you know, if you start at the heart of the system, I'm hopeful that then we can move it out into the rest of the system and try and tramp, tamp down, you know, the media polarization and the, you know, the flame wars of social media where, you know, it's just kind of, look, this was a loss for you. It's not the end of the world. Right. Most of the time. Yeah. So we're talking about like, we're talking about why there should be a world where politicians can just be real and say, you know, I didn't get everything I wanted. I got, I did the best I could. Um, the other side got some of what they wanted. This is the nature of compromise, and, and here we go. And we should be happy with it because um, this is the way it gets done. And you know, people can relate to that. Families go through that all the time. You know, come up with a solution that one daughter is is happy about, the other is less happy about, or some mix. That's just life, and we shouldn't sort of relegate people who compromise to being losers or weak or any of those other terms that are just not helpful at all. Yeah. We basically oscillate between why I'm fighting or you're accommodating. Right. Right, You know, and it's basically like, Oh, you know, and you know, there's, there's also compromise and then, you know, and again, in the ideal world, there's collaboration and uh, we say we want those things. 
And you see that in ads all the time, right? And yet, when it comes to recent things coming out of Washington, there hasn't been a whole lot of evidence of either, mm-hmm. right? It's let's compete uh, in the electorate uh, and try and take power that way so that we don't have to compromise and we don't have to collaborate. Well, you know, in uh, fairness, or we just have to, or we only do so within our own tri- tribe. There's, yeah. You know, Cause there's lots of compromise and collaboration going on within the tribe, just not enough going on without across the tribes. And so, you know, for instance, you'll just let, uh, you know, unemployment insurance benefits expire and mm-hmm. do nothing and then just go on vacation for a month. Like, you know, that's somehow okay in our system. Uh, we're somehow okay with that. Uh, and, you know, it's just like, yeah, well, people are going on vacation. They're going to go campaign. Uh, it doesn't matter that there's people who actually might need that money. Uh, and that would, that might help our society do better in a very trying time. Um, but, you know, that's where we're at. It's interesting. We did mention, I was just going to cite the, the CARES Act as potentially an example of where sort of people came together and got something done. Um, but yeah, sort of the, the, the sequel to the CARES Act. I, th- I think in our last conversation, we were saying um, it didn't feel like anything was going to get done. You expected something to get done. And, and here we are past. Here we are. I was wrong. And, I, will, um, I, will, I will take my lumps. I, I, I couldn't imagine that there was not a compromise to be had. Yeah. Uh, given that, uh, you know, you're talking about we already are in a depressed economy and you're now going to depress it further. Uh, I just, it doesn't, you know, and it set aside the fact that like, okay, like, you know, they're negotiating about what to do with the side effects of the pandemic, but they don't you know, what are we even doing to actually address the pandemic? (laughs) Like uh, it's, it's, it's actually unbelievable um, that, you know, we're, this willing to spite ourselves for various notions of ideology. Like uh, it's uh, we're supposed to be positive in this, but like, yeah, this is supposed to be about solutions. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, the the positive pod is, you know, let's look, let's, let's find uh, a group of people who will band together to enforce norms and not allow these bad decisions to happen and kick out the bad leaders who somehow, uh, you know, don't seem to get it. Right. So let's, let's uh, Bryce, let's, um, you know, I think at, at the national political level, it is so hard. You know, I, I agree like with the int- intuition and the notion of, Hey, we can re-inject some norms and some decency and maybe these, these people in the mar on the margins could be the, the pathway to that. Um, I could see listeners just sort of not buying it. Where listeners might be illuminated to the potential of some of this is in this this concept of deliberative polling that I've heard you mm-hmm. talk about. It's 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 an example of where people can actually be moved on issues and come together through conversation in a genuine way. Let's describe deliberative polling and, and how it's so po- uh, pos- uh, how it's so p- powerful. 
Yeah, so I mean, the idea of delivered polling is it's kind of like, well, instead of just calling somebody up on the phone and giving them a snippet of something and getting their reaction to it, well, what would happen if we actually polled people more like we do if they were serving in a jury? We make them come together. We allow them to listen to experts from all sides. We force them to listen to each other, right? Because you've got a random selection of people who now are bringing diverse backgrounds and stories and, you know, forcing you to kind of confront, uh, you know, opinions that you don't hear inside your tribe or inside your bubble, mm-hmm. um, you know, or experiences that you may not be familiar with inside your tribe or inside your bubble. And, you know, when you do that, it turns out that, yeah, you can get people to, you know, not to say that they will completely reject every notion that they've ever had before, uh, but you can see pretty large movement uh, in a lot of different areas. Um, And, you know, if you want to take it to the next level, not just do deliberative polling, but I would love somebody to uh, experiment with, let's get rid of one of our houses of the legislature and replace it with juries. Hmm. You know, stop, you know, you want to take, you know, one of the problems that kind of feeds into polarization is, you know, money in politics and the electoral conflict and all that kind of stuff. Well, why not just have a random selection of people like evaluate your bills? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, or uh, generate, you know, bills or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, we didn't, there's nothing magical about, the way that we select politicians that somehow says that, you know, I'm willing to, you know, basically turn my job into being a fundraiser and I'm willing to, you know, if I, you know, depending on the level I'm at, take a huge pay cut. Um, and I'm willing to, you know, deal with people yelling at me all the time. You know, it's not clear that you've, you know, selected, uh, the right person in terms of, oh, we've got the best people for figuring out how to identify and understand a problem, work through solutions, and then compromise and collaborate with other people. Yeah. You know, you know, why not? We, that's not to say that random selection would get me the best people either for those things, but it would actually probably be better than what we're, what we select on currently. There's, right? there's, Which there's is, I'm work- good at giving speeches. Yeah, there's work done in this space. In fact, there was a recent episode of Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History that kind of um, framed it in terms of uh, lotteries. You know, like student student governments were constructed on election versus lottery. And it turned out that the lottery service model led to better outcomes. And, you know, I don't know to what extent that's scalable. Um, I could certainly see it scaling to municipalities, um, well, and certainly for even if, you know, where it's been done, you know, so there's a, it, it goes by a variety of names, but like, you know, in some municipalities, when they have a difficult issue, they'll actually do a randomly selected committee mm-hmm. and say, here, committee, please come back with a solution to this for us. Right. I, you know, these are the kinds of experiments that I would love to see us try more of because, uh, it's pretty clear that what happens with our currently elected officials elected through our current system pretty obviously deviates from what you see from polling, right? You know, constantly. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, 
you know, there's got to be some reason for the wedge that we see. And that usually that wedge is tied to, well, I've got to keep those people happy because they're either people who fund my election or they're the people who fuel my election, right? So there's some sort of base, um, either a financing base or a voting base. And so, you know, instead of just reaching the thing that moves us the greatest amount forward, um, we've just given too many veto points, right? There's just too many people who have the power to veto uh, any kind of progress towards achieving something that might make us, you know, collectively better off. And so at this point, like I said, I'm open to almost anything. Uh, and, you know, and yeah, uh, the, in the Malcolm Gladwell podcast, you know, it was, you know, there was at least a, you had to raise your hand. Yeah. And the once you raised your hand, it was done by lottery. Um and that's fine. Uh, I'm also fine with literally just doing juries. Like, you know, let's randomly select from the population, make sure, you know, because one of the things at least those people, I think, you know, it's being largely done in high schools or whatever it is. But what they find is that you, you end up with a lot of people who would never run, right? Because they don't want to campaign. Exactly. Right. Yep. And they're like, oh, if you're saying that I can put my, my, my name in the hat and I have a chance of getting pulled out. I'm happy to serve. I'm happy to do the job, but I don't want to have to go through the, you know, the psychological trauma of running through for an election to get the job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some sense, I just, there's nothing magical about the hazing process of an election that necessarily means that I'm selecting the best person to do the job. Well, actually there's a lot of reasons to believe it's a bad system to select. Yeah. Yeah, It introduces a lot of potential gender bias, for example, you know, it's a system designed by men. It rewards a lot of male oriented traits. Um, getting up, speaking, holding a room, that whole, that kind of, uh, yeah, I think there's some interesting gender dynamics that are well, you know, and it, it favors people who have a bunch of money. It favors yep. people who you know uh, are older. Uh, you know, like uh, what's her? Katie Porter is that the representative from California? From California, yeah. She's the only single mom in Congress. Really? Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's not very. You know, so. That's not representative. Like, you know, and, you know, and she has a bill that she has introduced, you know, where basically, you know, allows uh, you to use campaign funds to pay for childcare. Because as of right now, you can't. Wow. Right. So if you're campaigning uh, and you have to pay for childcare, you got to somehow pay for that out of your own pocket. Uh, you know, so that it's a huge barrier. Right. So, yeah, we've got to do figure out how to make the process once you're in Congress work better, but ideally we would make the process of getting people who are serving in a public position better. And, you know, uh, yeah, I would love to see more places experiment with, you know, use the deliberative polling model, which is done as polling as a, you know, i.e. let's get information about what the electorate actually thinks when they're informed and have been exposed to each other. Right. And that's the basic idea of it. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see it take the next step to, yeah, let's use a randomly selected group of people to serve as a check on, you know, if you want to keep the normal electoral process, well, you've got two houses in a legislature. So, you know, 
maybe you've got you keep the senate as the senate and you make the house a true people's house and it doesn't have to be that you randomly select somebody who now serves as a full representative when they have to give up six months of their year or whatever it is but we could have easily imagine randomly selecting people onto committees mm-hmm. who are you know basically you know okay the senate passed the bill well we read the bill we hear about it and we say yes yes or no before it goes to the governor um, you know, there's a variety of different ways that you could imagine, you know, playing around with it. But, um, you know, the, the, the short version of this is that whatever we've been doing, we seem, I at least am very unhappy with. I don't think it works very well. Uh, it doesn't seem to be getting us closer to, you know, our ideals or any notion of an ideal state. And, um, I'm happy to try a lot of different stuff at this point. Well, I think that's the key. I think we need to start trying different stuff. The stuff we're doing is not working, and in many ways it's making the problem worse. And there are those sort of base um, emotional appeals to a lot of that. Like I can just go listen to Pod Save America and feel good. I could just go watch Fox News and feel good and you know, only pay attention to, to my side of the argument. And that's just not going to get us anywhere. No. And so, you know, to the extent that, you know, you get more and more people involved in the process in ways that force them to actually confront reality as opposed to the magical thinking version of reality. Because this is what, part of what these, you know, bubbles create right is you know i get into the bubble my little bubble and they tell me what the problem is and they tell me what the solution is and they tell me all the reasons why it is and i get to kind of feel warm and safe in my bubble and then you get out of your bubble and you actually have to go confront reality and it's the whole idea of deliberative polling is is you know it's easy to kind of just feel safe and warm in my bubble because it doesn't make me do any work right but I still have faith in, you know, the American people or in Montanans that if you actually said, hey, let's go sit down with each other and, you know, we'll have a skilled facilitator help facilitate the conversation to keep it from going off the rails. And, you know, we're going to listen to each other and I'm going to actually hear your perspective. You know, people will internalize it. They'll move positions. They'll say, yeah, I can compromise on that. And, oh, yeah, we could do this and we'll understand each other better. And we could actually get to the point of, you know, really understand each other doesn't mean we have to be happy about it. Right. So just outside of here, Missoula, the Blackfoot challenge. Are you familiar with this thing called the Blackfoot yeah, challenge? Yeah, absolutely. Great organization. Right? So, yeah. So their basic idea is, is that, you know, we can agree on 90% of stuff, right? And we're just not going to touch the stuff, you know, we'll let the other stuff go, but, you know, we can get 90% agreement on the issues that are affecting us mm-hmm. You know, and that's basically what happens in a lot of time. You know, a lot of time we could actually reach those levels of consensus, maybe not 90%, but we could certainly reach kind of 60, 65 level percent level consensus uh, on what to do and how to do it. If we have built the structure that allows us to form the relationships, to have the trust, to listen to each other, you know, and there's a lot of skilled facilitation that goes into that, right? You know, you it's not everybody that can, you know, you can get people into a room and not have it go off the rails. Part of that skilled facilitation would rely on or would include 
agreement about what the problem you're trying to solve is, right? Is that sure. something that's that's a piece of this too? Like there's not, people are talking, both sides are t- sort of talking past each other in terms of what the actual problem is. And framing of the problem has become a piece of the competition too. So ha- yeah, having a facilitator where we can say, hey, this is the problem we're trying to solve. This is what it means. And getting people to buy into that um, sort of starting point. Well, it starts even before that. I mean, the first stage of the skill facilitation is just listening to everybody so that everybody has been forced to hear the perspective of what the problem might be, Mm -hmm. right? So that then you can digest it and say, well, we think that this is the problem. Then we can kind of start to get agreement on that. And it, it really is true, right? In fact, you know, in some sense, the biggest problem in all of this is our inability to agree on what the problems are, Right. And in part, that's because the polarized media environment and the polarized political competition, you know, I don't want to give anything, right? I don't even give on acknowledging that this is a problem because once I acknowledge it a problem, well, now I'm like in danger of you like using it as a cudgel against me. Yeah, saying, or you well, have you to do something about this it. It was a problem. And now you have to, you know, and, and we have we have to again as part of a grown-up society, a grown-up conversation. It's it's okay to say, I agree that that's a problem, but I don't agree that it. We need to solve it right now, or I don't agree that you have you've come to me with a solution that's palatable. But instead, we're just going to run around denying that climate change exists, mm. or denying that coronavirus is a problem. It's a hoax. Like the fact that you know that magical thinking, that conspiracy thinking of let's deny that it's even a problem or even, or in the alternative, let's just make up a problem out of whole cloth, right? So that we can kind of, you know, convince people of some other, whatever nefarious purpose that we're trying to convince them of, right? Which we see a whole lot of is we're just going to make up something and convince you that this is a problem, you know, like, you know, whatever, I mean, that back in, uh, you know, when, uh, after the, the George Floyd protest, right? It was the mysterious white Antifa van that was coming oh, all yeah. across the West, mm-hmm. right? You know, and led to actual consequences for real people, right? Um, you know, but it was, it's all hoax, right? And, you know, that's all part of this larger system of let's, let's divorce, let's allow ourselves to be divorced from reality within a bubble or a cocoon of some kind of where it's, you know, we're all in this together and they're the bad people and it's us versus them. And, you know, we, we have to figure out ways to kind of get us out of magical thinking back down into reality. And, you know, one way of doing that is through things like deliberative polling, where you're kind of, forced to kind of see the world outside and you'd be like, okay, let me retether you back to reality. And, you know, a lot of this stuff hinges from the fact that, you know, Plato's chariot turns out to be a reasonable, you know, a, a description of the human brain, right? So Plato's chariot is, you know, the mind has two parts, the horse, which is kind of, you know, the quick, you know, instinctual, uh, thinking mind, and then there's the writer who's the rational, cold, whatever. You know, so Danny Kahneman calls this type one and type two right. thinking, right? And you know, if we, there are ways to get people out of the emotional, instinctual, 
process that kind of tends to kind of come along with magical thinking and get them back into the cold, rational, enlightened, um, you know, that ultimately democracy is built on. It requires that people be willing to engage in the hard work of thinking hard about issues. And, you know, we can get people to those. I believe that we can get people to those things. And I think we would do a better job of getting people that if we asked more of them, which is why I think, you know, bringing this back to deliberative polling or bringing deliberative polling into where more people are engaging in service would probably be a good way of helping to tamp this down. Because, yeah, if we're all just sitting at home on the Internet all the time. And, you know, we're just kind of slinging digital flames at each other, um, not really thinking hard because we're never really being confronted with the consequences of our actions or, uh, you know, what the what these consequences have for other people because the other people aren't real people. They're just avatars. Uh, you know, we've got to get this back into a human level where we're interacting with each other as humans, listening to each other as humans. Uh, and, you know, being forced to engage the more rational sides of our of our brains not to say that there's not time for animal instincts, but you know, when it comes to identifying a problem and trying to you know, organize the resources to solve it, much less execute the solution, you know, you've got to have a certain amount of you know, type two driver rational thinking. And I think that's not going to come until we ask more of people in terms of engaging with people who they don't know and who they may disagree with. Okay, so we got some clear solutions there. In the next month, we will get rid of social media and we will institute a national service draft. I like it. Those two things that you and I could probably get done, right? Just executive. That's right. We'll click, we, there's just no no problem. Yeah. I'll just I'll just issue a tweet about it maybe and it'll happen. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's how it works. Well, you know, Bryce, we should probably land this ship. I do think uh, I'm with you though. I mean, Sort of the status quo, I don't think can hold. And we need good people thinking about ways to break this this dysfunctional equilibrium that we're in. We offered a few ways today. I would love to hear for, from listeners if we have any left at this point as to what they think we can do to try to do better. Because um, we got to do better. I mean, society depends on it more than ever. It's your birthday. Give you a give you a birthday present. <laughs> yeah, give me a birthday present. Have some uh, have some. Come up with some better ideas than what Bryce and I came up with today. But uh, and then you know start marshalling the resources to execute them because you're gonna, it's going to be an uphill battle. Exactly. But any battle uh, worth taking on largely starts out as uphill and uh, stays uphill for a long time. Bryce, always a pleasure. Um, I think we got somewhere today, and that's that's all we intend to do each month when we get together is try to get somewhere, and I appreciate you carving out the time and sharing your wisdom. All right. Thanks, Justin. Happy birthday. Thanks. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that a new angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. 
Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.